Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, Joshua chapters three, four, and five. Now last week, in between the end of Joshua 2 and as a preface to chapter 3, we discussed the matter of how best to read the Bible, and especially the Tanakh, the Old Testament, although it applies to the New Testament as well, just to a lesser degree. And we learned that all societies in the Old Testament era were based on oral communication rather than textual. And therefore, even that which was written down was actually written down in a way meant for reading aloud to a group, small or large as opposed to being written like a novel or a, a modern textbook that's meant for reading silently and for personal study. Therefore, we find all kinds of literary devices in the Tanakh that serve to enhance oral communication. And in it, we find such things as repetition and alliteration and assonance, meaning a series of words that sound similar to one another, rhyme, songs, even a certain rhythm of phrases and sentences. None of this would be necessary in a textual-based system of communication, but it's essential in a system whereby information is passed along mouth to ear. So remember this as we move along with our studies. The spoken word was the way that tribal and national history and tradition and laws were generally passed on. Picture families and clans sitting around a smoking campfire after their evening meal. Children, young parents, grandparents, all listening intently as they stare into the cragged and weathered face of an Israelite elder while he holds them spellbound with stories of their ancient past and the God who watches over them. Okay. Turn your Bibles now with that in mind to Joshua chapter 3 and we're going to do something a little unusual. We're going to read two chapters consecutively plus the verse, first verse of another because it's a complete story and I don't want to break it up. Now, Although we'll study this in sections out of necessity, it's best to hear it as it would have been spoken All right, because then we're going to get the, a much more complete picture of it. Joshua chapter 3, chapter 4, and the first verse of chapter 5. Joshua got up early in the morning and they left Shittim and came to the Jordan where he with all the people of Israel camped them there before crossing. And after three days the officials circulated through the camp and gave the people these orders. When you see the ark for the covenant of Adonai your God and the Kohanim who are Levites carrying it, you are to leave your position and follow it, but keep a distance between yourselves and it of about a thousand yards. Don't come any closer so that you will understand which way to go because you haven't gone this way before. Yahashua said to the people, consecrate yourselves because tomorrow Adonai is going to work wonders among you. Then Yahashua said to the Kohanim, Take the ark for the covenant, go on ahead of the people. They took the ark for the covenant and went ahead of the people. Adonai said to Joshua, starting today, I'm going to make you great in full view of all Israel. So that they will know that just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Now you are to order the priests carrying the ark for the covenant as follows. When you come to the edge of the Jordan River, you're to stop in the Jordan itself. Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here. And listen to the words of Adonai your God. Then Joshua said, here is how you will know that the living God is here with you. And that without fail he will drive out from before you the Kenani, the Hitti, the Hivi, the Prezi, the Girgashi, the Amori, and the Yavusi. 
the ark for the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is going on ahead of you across the Jordan. Now choose yourselves twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And as soon as the priests carrying the ark of, the, of Adonai, the Lord of all the earth, put the soles of their feet in the water of the Jordan, the water of the Jordan will be cut off upstream and stand piled up like an embankment. So the people left their tents to cross the Yarden with the Kohanim carrying the ark for the covenant ahead of the people. And when those carrying the ark had come to the Yarden and the Kohanim carrying the ark had waded into the water, for throughout harvest season the Jordan overflows its banks, the water upstream stood piled up like an embankment for a great distance at Adam, the city next to Tzartan, so that the water flowing downstream towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. And the people crossed over right by Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark for the Covenant of Adonai stood fast on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Chapter 4. After the whole nation had finished crossing the Yarden, Adonai said to Yahashua, Take for yourselves from the people twelve men, a man from every tribe, and give them this order. Take twelve stones from the middle of the Yarden riverbed where the Kohanim are standing, carry them over with you, set them down in the place where you will camp tonight. Yahshua called the twelve men whom he had chosen from the people of Israel, a man from every tribe, and said to them, Go on ahead of the ark of Adonai your God into the riverbed of the Yarden. Then each of you take a stone on his shoulder, corresponding to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. This will be a sign for you. In the future, when your children ask, what do you mean by these stones? You will answer them. It's because the water in the Jordan was cut off before the ark for the covenant of Adonai. When it crossed over the Jordan, the water in the Jordan was cut off. And these stones are to be a reminder for the people of Israel forever. The people of Israel did just as Yahshua ordered. They took 12 stones out of the Yarden riverbed, as Adonai had said to Yahshua, corresponding to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, carried them over with them to the place where they were camping and set them down there. Yahshua set up 12 stones in the Jordan itself, in the place where the feet of the Kohanim carrying the Ark for the Covenant had stood. They are there to this day. The priests carrying the ark stood in the Jordan riverbed until Joshua had finished saying to the people everything that Adonai had ordered him to say in keeping with everything that Moshe had ordered Joshua. Then the people hurried across. When all the people had finished crossing, the ark of Adonai passed on and the priests ahead of the people. The descendants of Reuben, the descendants of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh went on, armed ahead of the people of Israel, as Moses had said to them. Some 40,000 armed soldiers ready for battle crossed in the presence of Adonai to the plains of Jericho. That day, Adonai made Joshua great in full view of all Israel. They were in awe of him, just as they had been in awe of Moshe all of his life. Adonai said to Yahshua, on order the Kohanim carrying the ark for the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Yahshua ordered the Kohanim, come up out of the Yarden. The Kohanim carrying the ark for the covenant of Adonai came up from the Yarden riverbed. And as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests touched dry ground, the water of the Jordan returned to its place. And the rivers overflowed its banks as it had before. The people came up out of the Yarden on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal by the eastern boundary of Jericho. Those twelve stones which they took out of the Yarden, Yahshua piled up at Gilgal. Then he said to the people of Israel, In the future, when your children ask their fathers what these stones mean, you're to explain it to them by saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For Adonai your God dried up the water in the Jordan from in front of you until you had crossed just as Adonai your God did to the Sea of Suf, which he dried up from in front of us until we had crossed. From this all the peoples of the earth 
can know that the hand of Adonai is strong and you can fear Adonai your God forever. Chapter 5. When all the kings of the Amorai on the west side of the Yarden and all the kings of the Canaanite near the sea heard how Adonai had dried up the Yarden River ahead of the people of Israel until they had crossed it, their hearts failed them and they fell into depression because of the people of Israel. The first words of this story, beginning in chapter 3, and Joshua rose up early in the morning, are really quite inspirational if understood correctly. In ancient Hebrew society, to get up early in the morning to start a task is to display, display great zealousness to be obedient to God. A person who has said in the Bible to rise up early in the morning wants to get the earliest possible start on carrying out whatever assignment or work the Lord is doing through them. It is a sort of merit badge. It's a, it's a character trait. It's a sign of being faithful that's being ascribed here to Joshua. And Joshua led the people of Israel, who must have been like three million excited children impatiently waiting for dad to come home so they can all leave on vacation. And he led them to move from Shittim, where they had been for some time, to a location only identified as being next to the Jordan River. And at this new encampment, after being there for about for, for three days, Joshua's officers went through this enormous tent city giving people instructions on just how it would be that they would cross over the Jordan. Now, let's examine something of a controversy concerning this section that's been caused by kind of a modern-day academic discipline called literary criticism. Okay. This, this controversy is that in Joshua 1.11, Joshua instructs people to get ready to move out because in three days they're going to cross over the Jordan. Now here in Joshua 3.2, it says that after three days, the officers went through the camp giving instructions about how the people were to follow the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan. And during all this time, the two spies were sent out to Jericho, had their dealings with Rehob, then they returned and gave their report to Joshua. So the issue is, was there one three-day period that began in chapter 1, verse 11, and ended with the crossing of the Jordan at the end of chapter 3, or were there two three-day periods? One at Shittim, another where they were camped on the Jordan, or just what? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward that there were not only two separate three-day periods, but also another couple of days thrown into boot. And I'm going to show you why it matters. We have the first three-day period spoken of in chapter 1 occurring at Shittim. The people have been camped at Shittim for quite some time, a couple of months or more. And so Joshua gives the order for the people to prepare to move out in three days. During that same time, the two spies go to Jericho. Then they hid themselves, recall, at the end of their time in Jericho for three days, returning either late at night or on the third day or early on the fourth to Joshua. Their return gave Joshua the information he needed so that that same morning, the fourth day, he led Israel to their staging ground at the eastern edge of the Jordan River. At the end of three more days, the officers went through the camp, telling the people to get up and go through the river and to follow certain instructions about the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 3 says that then the next day, the tribes got into battle order and began to cross over 
the Jordan. Here's the thing. Four plus three plus one days are eight. What we have is an eight-day period from the time Joshua gives the order to move across the Jordan until it actually happens. Now, numbers have great meaning in the Bible. They act like a guide, really even a, a reality check, to help us understand the heavenly context for what's going on in a physical way on earth. What does the number eight represent in Holy Scripture? Atonement and redemption. Remember how I told you in our previous lessons that just as inheritance was the byword for the redemptive process of Israel for hundreds of years up until this moment of crossing over the Jordan, but now the attribute of rest Nuah would become the new byword and goal for redemption. Crossing the Jordan into their inheritance was a milestone of Israel's redemption. Crossing the Jordan moved Israel into their inheritance, and eight is the biblical number for redemption. So you see how that, that works together. Now, what else is fascinating is that the term and action of crossing over has always played such a major role in Israel's redemptive history. Avraham crossed over the Euphrates River at God's instruction to go into a new land that the Lord would show him. In fact, the term crossing over was memorialized into the very identity of the Hebrews because the word Hebrew is taken from its Akkadian language cognate Epiru which means one who crossed over. So it's inherent in the name of the Hebrews. Okay. Crossing over would become the requisite for all who wish to join the people of God. Okay. There is perhaps no greater story, of course, of crossing over than Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. Okay. This, this act officially took them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. This crossing over the Jordan officially takes Israel out of the wilderness and into the Promised Land. And notice that in the Bible, crossing over always involves passing through water. We see this God pattern of utilizing water as a symbol of crossing over in our ritual of baptism. Even the notion of being born again brings us the image of passing through the water of the womb to get to the other side. We had Noah being preserved in, 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 in an ark while water cleansed the world of wickedness and Noah and his family crossed over that water and emerged on dry ground. Yeshua calls himself living water. And that living water is the only available path to mankind in order to cross over from our sinful state into a renewed life of rest and hope and service to God. Now, since it was the Torah that established the God patterns that will exist forever, and the patterns will be the boilerplate from which the entire Bible will emerge, Joshua becomes the first book where we watch as these patterns begin to be acted out inside of the promised land. And so I'm going to pause on numerous occasions to point them out to you, point out these patterns. Now, I think by doing this, you're going to soon be able to read the New Testament in a whole new way. 
and be able to help some of your friends and family to understand why knowing and believing all of God's word, not just the four gospels, is not only valuable but necessary. Let's continue in chapter 3, verse 3. There it says that while Israel was camped on the banks of the Jordan River, Joshua's officers began to spread the word on some critical instructions about crossing over the Jordan. And the most critical instruction concerned the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark would lead the way, and the people were to keep their eyes on the Ark, but also to maintain a distance of 2,000 cubits, 1,000 yards from it. The movement of the Ark would be Israel's signal for them to move. Now, up to now, remember, it was the fire cloud that was the signal to move, and it always led the way for Israel. When it began to move, then the wilderness tabernacle would be disassembled. The camp would be struck, and the Israelites would form up in a very specific order with the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun leading the way, following the fire cloud, with Reuben, Simeon, and Gad next. Then the Levites would follow in the middle, in a protected position, carrying the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. The remaining tribes followed after the Levites, bringing up the rear of the column. So what we have is the Israelites cross over the Jordan is a major transition. No more fire cloud to lead the way. That era ended on the east bank of the river. Instead now, the Ark of the Covenant would represent God's presence. And so it would lead the army of Israel from now on. And it would lead from the front as the fire cloud used to. Understand. Every Israelite alive at this moment knew of the fire cloud of God as their only source of divine direction. It must have been pretty unsettling to awaken to a new paradigm that no longer would they have that fire cloud to depend on. Thus we have Joshua's officers carefully going through the camp explaining this new reality or else the people would have had no idea how to respond and likely would have been pretty fearful. Wouldn't have wanted to go forward with no fire cloud in sight. The people were told to keep a distance from the ark because of the extreme holiness of God's presence and the danger of too close of a human proximity to it. Danger to the life of the human and danger to the sanctity of God. By the way, in time it became a rather strictly enforced regulation of tradition among the Jews that this 2,000 cubits, 1,000 yard distance between the ark and the people was to be the same as a Sabbath day's journey. This is where they got the idea for it. That is, The Sabbath day's journey was the furthest anyone could walk or ride on the Sabbath. Now, follow me closely because this is key. The same concept of extreme sanctity of the Ark of the Covenant was now applied to the people. Verse 5 instructs that the people, the entire congregation of Israel, were to be sanctified. Now, sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart. And why was Israel to be sanctified? Because over and over the Lord says to his people, you must be holy, for I, your God, am holy. Fellow believers, we simply don't pay enough attention to this command. And it's very harmful to our relationship with the Lord. While on one level, we have been sanctified by our trust in Yeshua, so had Israel been given a kind of sanctity by means of their trust in Yehovah. This kind or level of sanctity was spiritual. 
It was sanctity by fiat. Okay. God declared Israel was holy, so they were holy. End of story. But on another level, another kind of sanctity was demanded, a sort of physical sanctity. This kind of sanctity is reflected by obedience to God's commands and a mimicking of his attributes in the life of his followers. The idea is that the spiritual sanctity given by God's grace ought to lead to physical sanctity if the individual truly loves the Lord. Okay. This principle's never changed. And it's spoken of over and over as a central theme of the New Testament. Now, I'm not sure why this concept that has absolutely never changed is such a threat to the church. Hardly a week passes that someone doesn't dash up to this podium to tell me how fortunate we are that we don't have to obey laws that can't be obeyed because they're too hard. They explain that trust in Jesus has replaced obedience to God. Okay. I doubt there's a person who is hearing this message who doesn't feel a sense of deep loss over the watered-down and seemingly powerless state of the church in our era. Okay. Folks, it is this erroneous doctrine that grace has replaced obedience that's at the heart of the problem. So allow me one more time to state what the scriptures state on the subject. The law and Christ's grace are both acts of God's grace. The New Testament is not the only place in the Bible where God's grace is present. The law is grace because it was revealed to men what was formerly heavenly truth. And that truth tells us what pleases and displeases him and how to live a redeemed life. Christ is grace because he permanently atones for us, permanently cleanses us, brings us to a state of perfection that is otherwise unobtainable. It allows us to be in the presence of God for an eternity. We are not saved by the grace of the law. And conversely, we do not live a redeemed life simply because we've decided to trust Christ. Being redeemed and living redeemed are two entirely different things. Thus, the grace of the law, on the one hand, and the grace of Yeshua, on the other, are for, the, are for two different aspects of redemption. Yeshua and nothing else gives us salvation. And the commands of God and nothing else shows us the righteous way of living. Righteous behavior as a redeemed person ought to live. Understand, Israel was not redeemed by the law. First they were redeemed by God's grace out of Egypt. Then they were given the law. Modern man is not redeemed by the law. First we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who is God. Then we're given the law. The law is not for the world. It's for you. It's for the redeemed. The reason for this is self-evident. No man can carry out the law properly unless he has the Spirit of God living in him and guiding him because proper Torah observance depends on trusting God. Otherwise, we'd be attempting by our own strength and our, within our own sinful state to accomplish holy things. Rabbi Baruch has done a wonderful job explaining this from another angle. All right, in his article entitled, Is the Torah Enforced Today? that's available on the Torah Class website. And you'd be time well spent to go read it. Now in the context of verse 5 and its instructions that all the people of Israel are to sanctify or to invent a word to holify themselves 
This is a situation whereby a people long ago declared sanctified by Yehovah were to physically perform a sacred act of sanctification to honor the Lord by their obedience. The Israelites weren't sanctified on a spiritual level, then the then they became unsanctified because it kind of wore off. And now they have to be re-sanctified. That's not what it's talking about here. This again applies to the modern believer. But notice the key word here in God's instructions. It's a tough one. God says to the Hebrews, Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Does this mean that Israel can just declare themselves holy? Or that by performing some rituals, they have now, by their own works, merited their own sanctification? Not according to Genesis 15.6, whereby the principle of salvation, redemption, is established. Abraham believed in Jehovah, and Jehovah credited that to him as righteousness. Israel never merited their redemption. And modern believers, we don't merit ours. And the law is not about meriting redemption. It's about an appropriate response to being redeemed. Okay? See, this is a parallel situation to a person who is drawn by God towards Messiah Yeshua. There is an act of God involved in our redemption. And there is also an act of self involved. The Lord draws us, but we must accept by a decision of our own minds and our own free will. God in a supernatural, divine act redeemed and sanctified Israel on a spiritual level upon their rescue from Egypt. But on a physical level, Israel had obligations. They were now required to follow God's action with one of their own sanctified behavior. So, just as the words make so clear here, what Israel is doing for themselves is to do an act of sanctification or in our more modern lingo, they're going to do some sacred observances ordained by God as an outward demonstration of their inner condition. So this physical act of self-sanctification is the standard Levitical purification ritual as explained in the Torah. The people are to wash, they're to immerse themselves in water, and they're to wash, immerse, their garments in water. And of course, it must be living water. It has to be in a running spring or a river. That, thus is the reason that it was necessary for Israel to relocate from their camping place at Shittim, where water was scarce, to the banks of the Jordan River, where running water, living water, for the purpose of self-sanctification for three million people was abundant. The people are now prepared. The spiritually sanctified are now physically sanctified. And in verse 6, Joshua gives the order to the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant and move out ahead of the people, thereby passing the people. And the Lord tells Joshua that he is about to make him very great in the eyes of Israel. And this is not to magnify Joshua per se. This is to demonstrate to everybody that they can see that just as the Lord was with Moses, so he's with Joshua. Now, it's not fa it, it, it is utterly fascinating that Jehovah would do something in the exact same mold as he did with Moses to show God's favor to Joshua. God parts the Jordan River just as he parted the Red Sea. 
Now, of course, how it happened was a little different because the two bodies of water were different in their nature. The Red Sea was, well, it was a sea. It didn't have a source. It was a giant pool of water, if you would. The Jordan, on the other hand, was a flow of water that descended from far to the north towards, down towards the Dead Sea. Therefore, the Red Sea had to be parted while the Jordan had to be dammed up for a while. Okay. The priests were to carry the ark to the water's edge and once their feet touched, touched that water, the flow would stop. The Jordan River was either a trickle or a torrent, depending on the time of the year. Most people I take with me to Israel are usually pretty disappointed at the Jordan River because they're expecting the Jewish equivalent of the mighty Mississippi. Well, it's not. Okay. It's not very big and it's not very deep and it doesn't flow very fast during most months of the year. In fact, a child could wade across it in most spots most of the year. But in early spring, when the snows of Mount Hermon are melting, the river widens. It overflows its banks and it becomes dangerous and difficult to cross. This was the condition of the Jordan when Israel was instructed to cross over it. We know that this was the time of the year because verse, explain, uh, verse 15 explains that it was during harvest season that it happened. And chapter 4 tells us that they crossed over the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month of the new year. The first month corresponds to late March, early April by the modern calendar. At this time of the year, even in modern times, the water can be 12 to 15 feet deep and it moves very rapidly. It's usual for it to overflow its banks so that it's wider than usual in many spots. At a good ford, uh, it's possible for a strong swimmer to get across, but it's, it's risky. But 3,500 years ago, the flow was much greater than it is now. Okay. That's because so much water is diverted from the Jordan to satiate the thirst of an otherwise dry land and the millions of people who live there and the millions more tourists who come and visit and the residents and guests who want to take long showers and wash their cars and their clothing just as we do. The Jordan was, is substantially smaller today than it was in Joshua's era. All of this to explain that just as the Israelites took one look at the Red Sea and knew they were going nowhere. So Joshua's Israelites took one look at that deep and swift Jordan and thought the same thing. How are we going to get across that? Isn't that just the way God works? I mean, he leads Israel to cross the river at the worst possible moment. Come a month earlier, it's not so bad. Come a month later, not nearly the problem. But to come right at the peak of its flow, it would take a supernatural act of the Lord to get them across. And of course, that's exactly what he did. Several miles upriver, at a place identified as Adam, a city, right up here, he had a city near Zartan. The Lord blocked the southern flow of the River Jordan. And an interesting word was used to describe this blockage. It translates as cut off. In Hebrew, karet. It's the same word that's used to describe the result of a curse for disobedience to God. If one becomes unclean from sarat, he or she is taken out of the camp and karet, cut off from his or her people. If a person commits murder, they're cut off, correct, by being executed and cut off, correct, by being permanently separated from God. It's a spiritual term and it carries with it a physical manifestation. It usually involves some kind of death, physical, spiritual, both, because separation from God is death. The river was separated from God's people for a time. 
Karet is a very strong term. And so it is that the Lord karet the Jordan River to keep it from harming his people. It's absolute. It's without mercy. It's not gentle. The Lord cut off the flow. And in a short time, the river bottom was exposed and without explanation, dry. Then the priest carried the ark out to the center of the riverbed and stood there while the people passed by. Now get the picture. Many miles of riverbed now lay dry and exposed. The people passed across the supernaturally dried riverbed with the nearest view of the ark being from about a thousand yards. Without doubt, due to the uh, sanctification rituals they had to perform in the river, they had already spread out by tribe along at least two, three, four miles of the Jordan Riverbank. Crossing would have been easy and rapid as the terrain was relatively flat. Maybe at most a gradual 20-foot drop from the bank to the center of the riverbed and then back up to the other side. Probably it was little more than 50 to 75 yards from one side to the other. Let's move on to chapter 4. Once everyone had passed over, probably taking most of the day, another instruction was given. Stones were to be gathered from where the priests stood with the ark and brought to the riverbank. It's here that we find out what those 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel who had been selected without reason, being given back in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, were to do. They're the ones who may each take a rock and deliver it to be set up as a monument. The monument was to mark where Israel had crossed over and to mark the fact they had crossed over. This was a momentous event, another definable moment in the process of God's redemptive plan for mankind. It could now be checked off the list. Now take notice. These 12 men were given permission to get very near to the Ark of the Covenant to gather those stones. I'm sure they were a little bit shaken, not at all certain whether this was an honor or a suicide mission. For sure the Ark was still there because the riverbed was still dry. I also noticed that after Israel crossed the Red Sea, they erected 12 stones, one from each tribe. So the two crossings are closely tied together in their meaning. The 12 stones would be used that very night at the camp they'd set up near Jericho. Now you can be sure that the king of Jericho knew precisely the whereabouts of the Israelites and he wasn't happy about it. Not only that, I also suspect that the timing of Israel's crossing was a rather unwelcome surprise. I mean, with the harvest season rush of water, we can be pretty sure he figured he had at least two or three more weeks, maybe a little more, to get his defenses ready for him, as hopeless as the situation was going to be. God wants these stones to be a source of inspiration for his people. When the descendants of those who actually made that crossing are asked what the 12 stones mean, then the parents are to recount at that campfire to their children the amazing story of this divine deliverance. It is both a scriptural principle and a Hebrew tradition that each Jew or Israelite speaks about the exodus and the conquering of the promised land as though they had personally participated. This is an attitude that the Lord wants them to have. Their identity with their historical past is to be a common point shared by all Hebrews. This is really the same kind of thought that's expressed in modern Christianity. I mean, a historical event from centuries earlier is made into a personal confession of faith. I mean, have not most of us sung that beautiful Christian hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross. 
Apparently on his own, Joshua also set up another dozen stones in the middle of the Jordan where the other 12 stones were removed. That this account of the crossing of the Jordan was edited at a later date is evident with the next words of verse 9. And they, those 12 stones, are there to this day. Now, as I mentioned in regard to the harvesting of the 12, actually 24 stones, the priests remained there until all the people had crossed over and until the stones were selected and until Joshua gave the order to allow the river to resume its flow. Once the priests stopped, uh, stepped rather out of the water, um, it was released, the river returned to normal, and the ark took up its new position as at being at the head of of uh, leading the, the procession of tribes. Now, verse 12 gives us an interesting piece of information. The 40,000 troops provided by Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were the first to cross ahead of the other tribes. The reason, though not stated, must have been because they had earlier been described as the best warriors and because it was wise to put those experienced troops to the front. Okay. If they encountered the enemy, which was a very good possibility, they'd be ready and the families coming up behind them would be safe. But it also demonstrates the faithfulness and loyalty of those two and a half tribes, that land for which they would never personally possess, might be won upon the spilling of their blood. It would not be until the time of David that will again see such an expression of selfless unity as we see right now among the 12 tribes of Israel. Because as the battles for territory proceeded year after year and as each tribe in succession claimed its land allotment, the settled tribes had less and less interest in helping their brothers in the holy war of conquest and more in simply living and attending to their own tribal affairs. Now, verse 14 makes it clear that one of the purposes for the Lord's choosing this rather spectacular method of Israel crossing the Jordan was to magnify Joshua. And I don't think it takes too vivid of an imagination to picture the awestruck looks of wonderment on the faces of those Hebrews as they walked across on dry ground, but had only hours earlier been the very place where they had carefully bathed and washed their clothes in an act of self sanctification because to venture more than a half dozen feet beyond the riverbank risked being swept away in the fast moving current of those very chilly waters let me assure you the desired result was achieved the people held Joshua in highest esteem for the remainder of his days just as they had with Moses this unequivocally confirmed Joshua's divinely appointed leadership of the people the 12 stones removed from the Jordan were carried to the site of Gilgal, about three or four miles north of Jericho. It was there that Joshua would order a monument erected to their crossing over the Jordan. Gilgal would become the first and a very important center of uh, worship and culture for the Hebrews that they entered the promised land on the tenth day of the first month of the year is significant because in only four more days they would celebrate the first Passover in their new home. The tenth day of the month is when the lambs for the slaughter are to be chosen and thereby consecrated as God's sacred property. Well, the wilderness journey those 40 years of testing and growing and winnowing is now officially ended. And God's people have learned many valuable lessons along the way, but perhaps none will be more important in the years of battles that lay ahead of them than realizing this, and we're going to end with this today, that God does not help them automatically. The Lord only helps His people when they're obedient to his commands. And this is a principle they're going to test him on over and over again, at times causing themselves the severest agony. This teaching greatly troubles the contemporary people of God 
and much of the church denies and denounces it entirely. To look around us today, one would think that God's chosen as well as God's grafted in people honestly believe that this great principle has changed, or at least it ought to have changed. That in fact the Lord is obligated to help those who call on his name. That once we pray to receive Christ, our work is done. Once we have Jesus in our hearts, any need for obedience to the Father has ended. We have no need to pray for guidance, it'll just come. We have no need to sacrificially follow Yeshua as did his earliest disciples. All that lays ahead of us will be peace and comfort and prosperity. We have no need to study his word to learn how to live a redeemed life. Simply being redeemed is sufficient. There were times when the glory of God was so visible and present and pulsating with such power within his people that Israel's an hour merely showing up struck fear into the hearts of everyone who opposed him. But those times have been few and far between. And the reason is quite simple. God's people down through the ages have chosen not to be obedient to the word of the Lord or faithful to their redemptive king. This age notwithstanding. I'm going to close today's lesson with verse 1 of Joshua 5 that tells us what happens when the Lord's own do what is right and follows him without reservation. Joshua 5 verse 1. When all the kings of the Amorai on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites near the sea heard how Adonai had dried up the Jordan River ahead of his people Israel until they had crossed over it, their hearts failed them. They fell into depression because of the people of Israel. <laughs> 